Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, everybody. Daniel here to uh, just let everybody know that the Cannonball is a proud member of Agora Podcast Network. And uh, this month, Agora Podcasts are brought to you in part by the folks over at Wondery, uh, another podcast network who uh, would invite you to check out American Innovations, a new podcast of theirs. And we actually have a preview episode uh, up in our feed. So if you haven't listened to that yet, Go check it out. Um, and while you're also checking out other podcasts, please go to agorapodcastnetwork.com. Uh, find them on Facebook. Find them on Twitter. Uh, and check out all of our wonderful sister shows out there. And uh, without any further ado, uh, here we go with rounding up Don Quixote. Welcome to The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. This is Claude Myron Gozer, and with me as always is my co-host, Daniel Doherty. Daniel, how are you doing? Uh, good evening, Claude. I am, uh, I'm doing well. I'm feeling, I'm feeling pumped. We were, we were talking in the chat just about how, uh, how amped we are to uh, talk about book two of Don Quixote. Because folks, if you thought book one was a, a meta commentary upon any and all things uh, and a kind of just funhouse mirror uh, literary romp friends <laughs> so Cervantes was just getting started so this is gonna be this oh. is gonna be fun we're gonna this is this is cool and it's kind of I don't know it's a little exciting kind of wrapping up the uh all of our Don Quixote material you know we've, we've been at it, it for a few months now yeah and it's I, I I'm having this horrible time because the more I get into book two the more I just want to do a podcast about book two and Don Quixote <laughs> It, I mean, it, it really is so extraordinarily rich. I mean, cons- um, consider that um, friends out there in Radioland, consider that a call to action. Uh, we, we here at the Cannonball are uh, we are abdicating any uh, any attempt at doing a podcast devoted solely to Don Quixote. But that does not mean that you all should not pick up the baton. So any enterprising readers out there, go for it. No, speak for yourself. Uh, any, any enterprising readers, talk to me. Um, no, I I. Okay, what happened was I I think I, we talked about this last time that or or maybe even just the first time we did this mm-hmm. was that I, I've been reading this book since I was about seventeen years old and now I'm an old old man 
and it, the the thing that first drew me to it was that it was you know my interpretation of it, which was inaccurate, uh, which we'll talk about in a little bit, was that it was kind of like this light, silly romp mm-hmm. and and kind of a satire of the character of Don Quixote or, or kind of a, a mockery of him. And over the years, the more I read it, the more uh, serious it became. And, and this time around, <clears throat> using uh, sort of Echeverria's guide – it's it's extraordinarily illuminating and and there is so much more richness and depth to the whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really really saw that in book one, but book two goes bananas. Yeah, I mean it just the whole thing is so bizarre. Uh, just if you break down the structure, if you break down. Um, the the thematic things that he's really really playing with, and, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. And, and I do want to say, <clears throat> I'm not trying to basically do a Cliff Notes version of Echeverria. Mm-hmm. If any readers are really interested in taking a deep dive into Don Quixote, uh, I would say start with Echeverria. Mm-hmm. There are things that uh, I find problematic. There are things I think in there that are somewhat too pat. There are things that I, I just flat out disagree with. But he's a signpost. I mean, he has his own illuminations, and he's also a signpost for several hundred years of commentary on Don Quixote. So I kept wondering, would it be possible to do a kind of annotation of Don Quixote uh, like there are annotations of Dante? Because part two, part one, I I think, could deserve it. But part two really is so rich that I think it needs it to a degree. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I I was – the more I got into it, the more astounded I was. It was sort of like – Wow! Yeah, and it, I, it's and, so wild. And I guess I would I would say from like a, uh, I guess from from the hermeneutic I bring to a lot of this stuff, like I'm I'm, I, I can't help but try, but find myself <laughs> thinking about various historical contexts for yeah. all the works that we're reading, and you know it's it's a fool's game to everything. First of all, it's a it's a it's a mug's game to everything you're going to understand in the past. You're not just accept that. <laughs> um, that's the first rule of studying history. You'll never understand it. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, adding on to that, like you know, I, I, I like reading Don Quixote. I always felt mm-hmm. like there was, I mean, there's so much going on with it. And it's so embedded in its that point in time and this place and these processes that uh, Miguel de Cervantes observed around him that, you know, I, I found myself thinking like, I found myself thinking as I was reading, like, unless I had like a doctorate in early modern <laughs> Iberian history, I would never be able to even right. scratch the surface of what this man is really talking about. So, I, but I say that to mean like the, the idea of reading Don Quixote with a kind of, um, this kind of expansive critical uh, – uh, what's, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not guide necessarily, but uh, this expansive critical companion that, yeah, that Echeverria yeah, yeah. has has has, uh, has composed. That's really – that would be, I would also recommend that. Just from even from my standpoint, I'm not necessarily like – you know, I'm not, as, I'm not nearly – as well versed in theory as as Claude is, as anyone who listens to the show will, will <laughs> I, I, likely know. I think that's a damning compliment. <laughs> <laughs> but but that is to say that like the 
with Don Quixote especially, I mean, all, all the works that we read have sort of engendered that feeling in me. And I don't know if it's just because I have this particular, like, it's a, it really eats at me that I don't understand the Spanish Empire. <laughs> like, even <laughs> less than I understand other things. Um, well, you know, I, I think at that point, I don't think the Spanish Empire understood the Spanish Empire. Um, oh, yeah, not at all. <laughs> some of the moves they made. Well, that, that ties into a certain interpretation I have of the character of Don Quixote, which I guess I'll save for our kind of uh, our, okay. our wider shot at the, after we sort of talk <laughs> about what happens. Okay. All right. So what we figured was that we could um, sort of begin this in the same mode that we did the last one. Uh, we're going to start off. I'm going to do basically a synopsis of the plot and walk through the major beats of the book. <clears throat> and then I've got a couple of different sort of theoretical or thematic concerns that I want to take a close look at. Mm -hmm. And you'll hop in with some of the history as we, we keep moving along, and that's how we're going to get through this rough beat. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good, man. I um, I really hope that I, that I, I do have something to say, because um, I, I sometimes feel like... Uh, <laughs> Especially Don Quixote, like I've been sitting here like learning more and more as I listen to you like talk about it, man. So I'm hoping I'm gonna I'm gonna pull my weight this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you got this, man. All right. So I, something the the significant event that happened between book one and book two was the composition of a fake second book of Don Quixote. Mm -hmm. um, the unauthorized unauthorized sequel, as we might call it today. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It, it it was uh, an unauthorized sequel. Um, Cervantes discovered it while he was writing the second book of Don Quixote. So late, I, I guess about two thirds of the way through the second book of Don Quixote, Don Quixote discovers that the second book has been written, mm -hmm. and so he makes certain choices in order to negate the second book. So <laughs> like, we'll talk about it in a second, but um, you know, late in the game, he's going to Saragossa to go to the jousting tournaments and then finds out that the fake Don Quixote and the fake second book went to the jousting tournaments at Saragossa. And he was like, well, in order to prove it wrong, I have to go to Barcelona. <laughs> so he just <laughs> shows course. Uh, but anyway, so that that's the the framework that that's the 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 sort of I guess historical event that's lurking back there. Yeah. Now the other thing that that happened was uh, book one became extraordinarily popular. It didn't necessarily make Cervantes a lot of money. He had a lot of fame, mm -hmm. but he didn't necessarily uh, have riches to go along with it. Like if you, uh, like if you have a viral uh, YouTube video. <laughs> yeah, or a podcast. <laughs> or, or, a podcast or an extremely popular <laughs> podcast with millions of listeners like we do. Uh, I We're not extremely popular. <laughs> hey, they, they don't know that. I want our audience to feel like they're a part of something really big. No, yeah. but you're right. Though. They're, they're the elite who know, man. They're, they are, yeah. our, our listeners are, are, are people of discernment and taste. Yeah, it's uh, caviar to the general. That's, that's but right. But anyway, to, to, to get back, um, so he, he set out to write a second book. But the weird thing about the second book is from the very beginning, the characters in the second book, are made aware that they're characters in the first book. Yeah. So <clears throat> that's kind of the game he's playing with the whole structure, is this sort of meta-literary game. 
I'll talk about why that's important in a little bit. All right. So I'm skipping over the introduction, which is very, very funny and includes uh, a a couple of just bizarre anecdotes that are kind of covert jabs at the fake book of Don Quixote. Yeah, yeah. and it, it's just weird. I, I urge everyone to read it just for the dog blowing story. Um, they, there's some weird story that Cervantes is telling about this guy who uh, was a madman in a local town who found a way to stick a straw up a dog's butt and blow into it to inflate the dog and then kick it around. And the crux of the story is um, he, he's he's answering a criticism of the the author of the second fake book uh who says that cervantes is a terrible writer and didn't do anything really worthwhile (laughs) and cervantes answers back so consider this anecdote and think to yourself well do you know how to blow up a dog (laughs) so he's he's putting don quixote in it's very serious but anyway so um book two opens up very um Cervantes had to be careful about this. You could not be openly critical of the crown in any way. And I really don't know what exactly his feelings about certain things were, but this is an extraordinarily ironic and extremely ambivalent work. Yeah. uh, Particularly as regards the, the official power structure. Um, but it opens up with Don Quixote com- uh, contemplating the current state of the Spanish military. Uh, there's this call for all kinds of solutions to what I suppose we would call the problem of the Moriscos. Um, the the Jews had been kicked out of Spain in 1492, mm-hmm. and the Moriscos, a lot of them were still <clears throat> sort of kind of hanging around. These were uh, Moorish converts to Catholicism, and there was this kind of general fear that they would be a kind of fifth column. Right. Yeah, that, that would allow the Turkish army to invade. Right, exactly. This is because yeah, you know, at this time there was kind of the um, there, well, there was just sort of general panic about the Turks because this, you know, this was supposed to be the time like you know, the high water mark of uh, Ottoman Turkish expansion you know, under Suleiman the Magnificent. You know, um, yeah, but yeah, and so the you know the the Spanish state was part of a it was a Mediterranean empire as well as the Iberian Peninsula and the New World at this point, because they still held like Sicily and Southern Italy. Um, right. So that they were kind of directly in the crosshairs and, you know, looking out across the, the Strait of Gibraltar to the, uh, you know, the Barbary, what we, you know, would know as I guess the Barbary coast or North Africa, you know, it's kind of like almost a pincer movement there. And, you know, throw into that, the, the long, long, long tradition of uh, valorizing the struggle against Muslims and how vile they are in the uh, Iranian right. culture. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just rife for all kinds of uh, truly just really awful paranoia and, and repression. So what is Don Quixote's solution? Well, revive chivalry. So, <laughs> and, and there's there's something to that. We'll get to that in a little bit. But mm-hmm. um, so he he comes up with this plan. Uh, he's talking to the barber and the priest from the first book, and he comes up with this plan basically to send this long detailed list to the king. Here's what you need to do to revive chivalry, and they worry that he's going mad again. But he tells them very clearly, "I know who I am." 
Mm-hmm. I, I'm sane. I'm not a lunatic. Um, Sancho shows up with news of the first book. The This local student, Sanson Carrasco, uh, has read the first book of Don Quixote and has been telling everybody about the first book of Don Quixote. And so Don Quixote is famous without even really knowing it. Yeah. So um, Sanson Carrasco shows up to basically give them all the details and um, – Sancho cleans up the errors of the first book. Uh, there were a couple of errors in the first book. Does Sancho's donkey get stolen by Hines de Pont- uh, Pesamonte or does it not? Mm-hmm. Uh, what is Sancho's wife's name? There are a couple of other details that, that Cervantes kind of shifts or forgets about or does what have you. And so Sancho says, well, you know, everybody seems to be pointing out this, but really the the donkey was taken from me in this way. And then I got it back at this point. I mean, what's the problem? <laughs> which is really, which is a brilliant way to do your kind of retroactive continuity fixes um, by, yeah. just, by just having like Luke pointing out like, oh yeah, well, you know, someone else wrote the book. It wasn't written by us. So they got some details <laughs> wrong. <laughs> but but anyway, it's the self-consciousness or self-awareness mm-hmm. that they've already been w- written about. So Sanzo and Carrasco tells them um, the, the best thing to do to go really prove chivalry in this horrible debased time is to go to the Festival of St. George in Saragossa. And Sancho goes home to talk to his wife. She doesn't want him to go, but he wants to go anyway because he's still being promised this insula, this island, Mm -hmm. that he doesn't even know what it is. All right, so Don Quixote and Sancho sneak out uh, at night and they ride for a day, and then in the dark, uh, or, or close to daybreak, but still in the dark, they make it to Toboso. Uh, because Don Quixote wants to pay obeisance to his lady Dulcinea before he leaves. Mm-hmm. They get to Toboso, and Sancho has this problem, because Sancho in the first book had told Don Quixote that he took the note to Dulcinea. So, technically... Sancho is the only one who knows who Dulcinea is and what she looks like. He's also apparently supposed to be very familiar with the town of Toboso. Now, Sancho is neither of those things. So he has to improvise and come up with some kind of scheme. So he keeps uh, Don Quixote in the dark up to a degree. And then as day breaks, uh, he sees these peasant women riding donkeys and they're kind of rough and burly and Sancho just figures, well, Don Quixote keeps seeing the wrong thing is the wrong thing all the time anyway, so I'll just say these pe- one of these peasant ladies is Dulcinea and he'll never know the difference because he's just going to mistake <laughs> it for a princess anyway. Right. Something strange happens because Don Quixote does not go along with it and he doesn't see them transformed. He sees them as peasant women. Mm-hmm. And part of what you get is, well, (laughs) Don Quixote says they must be enchanted. This must be an an enchantment by one of the enchanters who's always following me around. So he mistakes reality for enchantment. Yeah. All right. So instead of um, seeing an inn and thinking it's a castle, he sees uh, uh, this peasant woman and thinks she must be a princess, but she's been enchanted to make me see her as this. Yeah. So it's this weird, um, convoluted commentary on his earlier delusions. All right. So they head back out and um, they hit the road, and that's when they run into. 
uh, a wagon with an assembly of death. Uh, they run into a bunch of actors who are going from town to town to perform these kinds of, um, I guess, morality plays. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, uh, that's the, uh, I believe it would have been in the uh, the tradition of what's called the mystery play, which yeah, yeah, was yeah. – um, it was a form of theater in the uh, – most prominent in the Middle Ages and continuing on into the early modern – that um, it emphasized well morality plays, like you said. Like it, it they were very didactic, heavy-handed, um, just glaringly allegorical plays about how to be a good peasant and how to love the church with all your life. You know, kind of stuff. So one of these characters, they, they haven't changed costumes because the the towns are so far apart that by the time they get to the next one, they got to just jump up on stage. Yeah. So they um, the the. They first meet a devil, and then they meet death, <laughs> like this guy dressed up as death. And so Sancho is terrified, but Don Quixote sees them as actors. He doesn't see them as the characters. Right. This is part of this this long game that, that Cervantes is playing with, disenchantment. I'll talk about that in a little bit. So um, they still get in a fight with the actors uh, over something stupid, but eventually um, Don Quixote uh, gets his horse back. One of the... No, uh, one of the, the actors steals Sancho's donkey, and um, they get it back. So anyway... Uh, that's when they uh, ride into the forest, and late at night, they meet this other knight and this other squire who are professing the same kind of chivalry as Don Quixote is. Yeah. Uh, this is, who we find out, is the Knight of the Mirrors. It's this <clears throat> this knight who uh, has tiny little sparkling, shimmering uh, sort of half-moons all over his his coat. Or all over his armor, and the the Knight of the Mirrors says something about having defeated Don Quixote in battle, mm-hmm. and Don Quixote says that's impossible. I'm right here, and then the Knight of the Mirrors says, "Well, um, I need to defeat you because you claim that Dulcinea is the most beautiful and my girl is the most beautiful." And so they get into the chivalric argument and set up for a joust. Um, in the morning, they joust. Don Quixote accidentally wins. Uh, keep that in the back pocket because this is something that that we can pay attention to structurally. There are a lot of mirrors in Don Quixote. Right. Well, you have the Knight of the Mirrors, but you also have uh, echoes or mirror reflections of things that happened in the first book. Right. And in a weird way, Don Quixote accidentally winning this contest is a parallel to accidentally winning against the Basque. Right, right. Uh, it, it's set up in the same way and at about the same point in the book. So <clears throat> the Knight of the Mirrors falls over and they take his helmet off and it's Sanson Carrasco, <laughs> the guy who told him to set off in the first place. Right. But Don Quixote decides it can't possibly be Sanson Carrasco. It's some other knight that all of these evil enchanters have made look like Sanson Carrasco. <laughs> right. So uh, Sanson and his squire, <clears throat> who is this dude that Sancho knows from the neighborhood, are both beaten up and limp off to find an inn where they can heal their wounds. And Don Quixote uh, figures, well, I just won a fantastic contest. I'm going to keep going on the road. Yeah. So he and Sancho keep heading to Saragossa. They meet a gentleman in green, Don Diego de Miranda. He gives uh, Don Quixote gives advice to Don Diego about what to do about his son. His son 
wants to study the arts, but he doesn't know if his son should do that. His son wants to be a poet and wants to go into the literary profession. And Don Quixote uh, offers him sage advice about, you know, the power of poetry and how how influential and important it is and how his son should basically follow his own path. In the middle of this, Don Quixote tries to fight a lion. Um, <laughs> right. a, guy, a guy shows up with two lions that he's transporting to uh, to the, the king, to court. Yeah. They're a gift from some other courtier. And this is one of those those weird moments in Don Quixote, Don Quixote that is both extraordinarily realistic and extraordinarily fantastical. Like, yeah. how often does this happen? And yet, you see this happen. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean that's the, the kind of thing, like um, you know, the, 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 the like this exchanging of diplomatic gifts, including um, sort of remarkable creatures, is extremely longstanding. You know, I mean, this this goes all the way back to like. Uh, what was it? Uh, the, the the caliph of Baghdad uh, gifted Charlemagne an elephant one time. You know, I mean, this, yeah. this kind of stuff actually does happen. But yeah, you, you sort of think about like, man, what if I was just some guy on the road and I see this elephant walking down in you know in the middle of France? Like, yeah, it's got to well, be pretty nuts. I, I used to teach conversational English at a place that was two blocks away from Rockefeller Center, mm-hmm. and I was walking to work once uh, October morning. And there were a bunch of camels just hanging out in front of the office. I was like, what in the world? They were setting up the Christmas pageant, but like it's the rehearsal. Yeah, yeah. So they got to keep dra- dragging the animals in for this. Yeah, you know, time. the camels are it's on like, their smoke break outside, you know, got it. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's one of those things that's fantastical, but also extraordinarily normal. Yeah. So anyway, um, Don Quixote convinces the guy to open the cage so that Don Quixote can face down the lions. Everyone else runs away. The lion comes out, is sleepy and um, full of food, so he just turns his butt to Don Quixote and walks back in the cage. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> Don Quixote considers this a win. Sancho <coughs> excuse me, changes his name from the Knight of the Sad Face or the Knight of the Sorrowful Face to uh, the Knight of the Lions, and Don Quixote follows <coughs> Don Diego back to his house, where they hang out and, you know, stay for a day or so, and he basically gives uh, Don Diego's son some sage advice on how to be a writer, and they enter into some literary criticism, and they can't tell if Don Quixote is sane or insane. And that, that becomes kind of a, a running thing all throughout. Everyone who talks to him says, wow, if you don't get him started on the chivalric stuff, he seems like the smartest, wisest man in the world. Yeah. Uh, get him started on chivalry. <clears throat> he goes off the deep end. All right. So they leave uh, Don Diego's and they meet a shepherd who tells the story of Basilio and Camacho. Basilio uh, is a poor guy with lots of abilities who has fallen in love with this woman, Quiteria, or or a girl, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And Camacho is this rich man who's just inherited all his wealth, who's also in love with Quiteria. And he has proposed to her, and she apparently has said, yes, she will marry him. Um, They – it's a mirror of the Cardenio story. Yeah. Uh, the the rich suitor versus the poor suitor, the one who loves, the one who doesn't, you know, who has the ability and the talent, who doesn't. Uh, but anyway, they Don Quixote and Sancho enter this area that sort of arranged like this giant theater. 
Uh, it's got tons of food, and Sancho, you know, hits the the soup pots, and they watch this pageant occur. That's uh, sort of it's sort of like a mask. It, yeah, it, it's a mask that um, illustrates basically Basilio's side. Yeah, um, uh, and so for some yeah. of our uh, for some of our listeners, uh, Claude, could you explain what a mask is? Because uh, I have to I have to confess, I was well into college before I ever actually understood what the heck a mask was. It's it's this weird genre where you would basically get a, a very good playwright to compose a court entertainment for you that you would participate in, that you would act in. Yeah, so it was almost like kind of like a uh, like a play or an opera, but that took place around the party that you had that you had all your courtiers at. Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes you were in it. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you were not. Uh, you know, Milton wrote uh, a couple of these, or, or he wrote a famous one, Comus, for a friend of his daughter. Yeah. So you, you know, it's it's if I remember correctly. Okay, don't quote me on that. We're, do, we're doing Milton next time. Right. I'll have my facts straight by then. But he wrote a famous mask called Comus, which I believe was for his friend's daughter, and it was sort of like a courtly puritanical entertainment for her. Anyway, uh, so it, it's this large theatrical production, and at the end of it, Basilio, the the sort of jilted suitor, uh, comes in. And contests Camacho's love. He says, I'm not as rich as you, but I'm a much more talented guy. Uh, at this, he pulls a sword and stabs himself and falls over, bleeding to death. Uh, he, he calls for a priest, but says he won't take um, <clears throat> final rites until Kiteria marries him. Yeah, uh, and so the the con the the plan is uh, it's a con, but the plan is to um, get her to say yes to him, and then he'll take final rights and die. And he's he's playing. Echeverria makes this point. He's um, he's basically blackmailing the whole party because mm-hmm. if they let him die without taking final rights then uh, basically he's going straight to hell right? because he's a suicide. Right. But if he takes final rights, uh, the chance is that he'll get into purgatory. So they're either going to condemn him or, you know, let him pass on to someplace not so bad or not as bad. Uh, Kitaria agrees. And that's when Basilio jumps up and says, ha it was a trick. Uh, he had a tube loaded with blood that he stuck into his armpit and he basically... Uh, conned her into marrying him, but she wanted to marry him anyway and was only marrying Camacho for the money. Yeah. So, which is made clear. So Camacho <laughs> says, um, yeah, that's cool. Fine. You guys go ahead. And uh, Basilio and Quiteria go off to his place and Don Quixote and Sancho and Basilio's followers uh, go with them. So it's it's there at that party. It's like a party after the party. Um, they meet the cousin of Basilio, who's a student, who tells them about the cave of Montesinos. So this is an actual cave in Spain. And it's named after this uh, character from this round of Spanish legends about... Or it's Spanish poems about characters from... French romance, if I've got that right. So Don Quixote says, you know, there's supposed to be all kinds of splendors in the cave. 
I want to go in and, and explore it. <clears throat> so they get to the edge of the cave and all these bats and ravens fly out. So that's this creepy portent. They lower him down into the cave with a rope. They lower it all the way to the bottom. They wait a while. Sancho and Sancho and the, the cousin are they. They wait a while. <clears throat> and eventually they pull him up and they find that Don Quixote is asleep. So they wake him up and he tells them that he had this magnificent vision down there. He was down there for um, a much longer period of time, at least several days. And he says he was in this kind of um, blissful afterlife. Now, what he describes down there is falling asleep and then waking up. Mm -hmm. So if you want to consider this his dream, he had a dream that he fell asleep and woke up. So it's like this weird dream within a dream. Mm -hmm. I mean, th th there's a lot about this this book that gets very inception-esque. <laughs> right. But, <clears throat> but he, he falls asleep and then wakes up in his dream. And while he's down there, he meets all of these characters out of chivalric legend. He meets Montesinos. Uh, and then he also meets uh, Durandarte, who was this chivalric knight who, as he was dying, cut out his heart to send to his beloved. And he's frozen in time. Yeah. Uh, this is this kind of uh, afterlife where all of these chivalric characters have been frozen in time, but these weird, strange things start to happen. Uh, Montesinos holds up the heart of Durandarte, and it's preserved in salt. So it's sort of like, on the one hand, y you've got, you know, here's my grand romantic gesture, send her my bleeding heart. Yeah. On the other hand, you've got this shriveled piece of beef jerky that's <laughs> right. sort of sitting in his hand. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's how they describe it. So he goes to see the tomb of Durandarte, and the tomb of Durandarte is a mausoleum, but um, instead of... A, a, a statue on top of the coffin. Like, all right, have you ever seen, uh, you know, noble tombs in Europe or, or fancy tombs in Europe where they have a kind of statue of the person on the top of the tomb? Yeah, yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah, that's so, uh, I, I actually recall I, I saw Dante's tomb, uh, which has which has just that. That's uh, like, yeah, I got a nice little sculpture of the man himself, you know, looking very stern and serious. Did he ever look otherwise? <laughs> well, I mean, one would assume like, not. I mean, for, I, for the writer of the Comedia, he's uh, very serious. Right. right. Anyway, uh, sorry, it's stupid. But um, on top of the tomb is Durandarte, his body. So it's sort of like instead of the monument being the monument, the monument is him himself. And he starts speaking to Don Quixote and gives, uh, you know, this kind of lament. And then Don Quixote sees several other characters from chivalry who are both timeless and also seem to have aged. Yeah. So it, it, it's a strange moment. And then um, he sees the enchanted Dulcinea who hits him up for money. So it's <laughs> the peasant girl. It's, it's Dulcinea as the peasant girl, and she has been enchanted. And this is sort of like his his imaginative confirmation of, of Sancho's con and uh he he only has a certain amount of money but gives her what he has which isn't as much as she wanted and then she hops away so he gets up and 
Sancho is sort of arguing with him and says, you know, I, I, I really think you got to rethink this because you got to be crazy to believe this is real. And Don Quixote says, I know you have my best interest at heart, but trust me on this. Yeah. All right. So <clears throat> they, they go, uh, they, they get back out and they keep going and they go to an inn and Don Quixote does not mistake it for a castle. That's where they meet Master Pedro, who is this traveling puppeteer who also has a monkey who will sit on his shoulder and tell him the future. Now, the monkey uh, isn't actually doing anything. Uh, we find out that the puppeteer is none other than Ginez de Pasamonte, uh, the thief and uh, guy headed for the galleys that Don Quixote freed in the first book. Uh, he comes back disguised. Uh, and he's got this trick monkey. What he does is <clears throat> goes into town way ahead of time, mm -hmm. gets a bunch of information about everyone and everything, and then uh, he'll take money to spit back out present information about the town. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Because he pretends the monkey is telling him stuff. But he knows Don Quixote, so he can talk all about Don Quixote. <laughs> so anyway, uh, he has this puppet show, which is uh, uh, a reenactment of a chivalric quest. The, the guy, uh, Hines de Passaponte, is um, in disguise as Maestro Pedro, is pulling the strings of the puppets and making the puppets work. And he's got this kid who's basically doing all the dialogue and doing all the, the plot. And the kid keeps going off book yeah. and adding and improvising and doing all this other stuff. And so both Don Quixote and uh, Master Pedro keep telling him, no, stick to the script, please. <laughs> stick to the script, please. <laughs> right. um, Don Quixote, uh, at a certain point, um, after pointing out all the inaccuracies, is so taken by uh, the, the story in the puppet hearing that he attacks the puppets believing they're actual moors out to get um the two characters who are fleeing them so yeah. you've got this story within the story that is then interrupted by don quixote but all of this again is this reflection of i, I guess what the spanish would have could considered the problem of the moriscos right right all right so anyway um he pays off maestro pedro and then the next day, he and Sancho uh, are riding out again. They get in a boat and let it go. Uh, <laughs> Don Quixote uh, thinks the boat is going to take them to Parnassus or some kind of other mystical place. Uh, Sancho, it, I can't remember the place he, he claims, but he, he thinks it's going to take them into further magical adventures. And Sancho is very, very concerned about it. And they hear this horrible noise. This is a parallel to the fulling mill. Like mm -hmm. the, the section in book one where they hear the horrible noise in the forest and um, Don Quixote wants to valiantly stand up for it. And what it is is a, a watermill that they're heading straight towards. So Don Quixote refuses to acknowledge the danger. A bunch of millers covered in, in flour who look like ghosts <laughs> <Yeah>. basically <laughs> save them. Um, by, by pushing the boat out of the way and they swim to shore, they reclaim their mounts and then keep going. All right. Uh, what, oh, one of the, the funny things, uh, and this will come up again later, Don Quixote is using all kinds of Ptolemaic cosmological stuff to guide the boat. Yeah. 
And by that point, Ptolemy had been completely disregarded. So right. even his I mean, science yeah. is like way off. Even in the most, you know, we might consider sort of the, 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 the Spanish state to be among the most sort of hidebound and backward in, in that sense. But yeah, even, yeah. even among... Right. Yeah. Even among the, you know, the, the church dominated, uh, you know, Spanish society, it was right. Ptolemaic astronomy was, I mean, yeah, definitely, definitely yesterday's news. So this is where, uh, things really sort of take a turn in the novel. Uh, they, they're walking through the woods or riding through the woods and that's when they meet the Duke and Duchess. Uh, they're hunting with hawks. All right. So Echeverria makes this point, and I think it's something worth pointing out. And I want to pause here to talk about the Duke and Duchess very briefly. Yeah, uh, the Duke and Duchess are pretty clearly—they're uh, uh, emblematic of a corrupt, useless aristocracy that is good for nothing. Right. Um, <laughs> yes. they, they are, you know, the 1% as reflected in the Kardashians or Paris Hilton or what have you. They are useless. Well, and, they, uh, and they're, they're kind of like a, uh, they're kind of like this ultimate refutation of the, of the very idea of chivalry. Yes. I mean, cause and, the, the whole, the whole point of the chivalric order was that through this kind of hierarchy of nobility then that that the higher up you are the more nobility you would uh you would embody and of course the duke and duchess are you know they're They're, just the lowest of the low just reptiles (laughs) yeah uh it's very easy to hate them uh for a lot of reasons now one of the things that i find amazing is that cervantes never quite tips his hand there's a lot of ambivalence and you you kind of have to look for it mm-hmm. but he never quite comes out and talks about how awful and useless they are the the narrative never shifts tone but the details are all there let's talk about those details first they're hunting with hawks okay so if you're hunting on horseback uh, or or hunting without horses or, or doing what have you, you're you're basically subsistence hunting. You're you're hunting for food or you're hunting to use it in, in some capacity. But hunting for and and there's an actual work that goes along with it. Yeah. Right. It's sort of like how um, how sports in a way is a reflection of warfare. So hunting is kind of like this reflection of warfare. Right. But the Duke and Duchess are hunting with hawks, which basically means you're standing in a field. Uh, putting a, a bird on your arm, then throwing it up in the air, and then waiting a little bit for it to come back with a rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> so if if football, let's say, is a reflection of warfare, then what the Duke and Duchess are doing is playing John Madden. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it, it's <laughs> That's, yeah. It's 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 already sort of debased if you know where to look for it. Yeah. Now, a couple of other things come out in the episode of the Duke and the Duchess. All right, so they've already read book one of Don Quixote, and they treat Don Quixote as if he is a knight errant. So it validates right. some of his his ideas. But they know, and they're just making fun of him the whole time. Um, the thing is, he is much more cosmopolitan than they are, and in fact behaves much more graciously than mm-hmm. they do. So his False chivalry is actually more chivalric than their very real aristocracy. Yeah. 
it, it's it's exactly what you were saying. Now, if you pay close attention, <clears throat> you figure out that they have basically bankrupted themselves, and they just keep borrowing more and more money from this rich farmer who lives on their land, and he's happy to loan it to them, uh, presumably on lots of interest, but they are making nothing, they're doing nothing, and they're not even adequately overseeing their own property. The guy who's really in charge of everything, if you read between the lines and know where to look, is the butler. Hmm. Yeah. So the, he's the one who sets all the entertainments in order. He's the one who's keeping everything in line. He's the one who's basically writing everything uh, because they have I, – I, I lost count of how many processions occur in the Duke and Duchess episode. I think it's about three. Yeah. Where they keep having these elaborate, fantastic displays just to mess with Don Quixote. It's like, what do you do with yourselves? But um, anyway, so they're they're more or less bankrupt. Um, they they behave like jerks, and they they're not even just in their their um, judgments and decisions. So, and, and we'll talk about that in a second. But it, it's it's really, really, really. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's a really rough yet ambivalent satire of the shifts that were going on in Spanish culture at the time. Yeah. Uh, 
this is okay. <clears throat> the Echeverria talks about this. I'm going to keep saying that, but the <laughs> the cliche is that the first book of Don Quixote is the Renaissance book. The second book is the Baroque book. Yeah, but that was such a, an aspect of the Baroque was the disillusionment, the disenchantment. Right to show it, you know, for the reality that it is. Don Quixote in showing. Or, or Cervantes in showing the illusory nature of all this is really showing the reality, which is these people are nothing. Right. All right. So the the Duke and Duchess um, they take in Don Quixote and um, they they just start messing with them. So they're out in the garden and there's another mask. Uh, demons and devils show up. Again, we can't get enough of demons and devils. And finally, uh, the figure of death arrives and claims he's Merlin in the image of death. And he says that in order to disenchant Dulcinea, Sancho has to whip himself. Uh, uh, I think it's several thousand times. Yeah. It's like, it's like three or 4,000 times. Yeah. 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 And all right. So because Sancho had basically told the Duke and Duchess, he, he had a private conversation with the Duchess where he told her all about, Hey, I never actually saw, uh, Dulcinea, and um, I made this up on the road, but you can't tell Don Quixote. So they use that against him, and their whole plan is to get Sancho to hurt himself. Right. The the joke is pain. Yeah, that's that's the okay. only the only the only gag that they have. Yeah, is that they're going to get this peasant to harm himself. Yeah. Yeah, and they keep doing it again and again. <clears throat> Uh, okay, so Sancho is finally made governor of an island. The duke says, fine, I'll give you an island. Uh, I have an insula, and I would love for you to be the governor. So uh, he's prepping for all of that when there's another <laughs> procession. Out in the garden, uh, we have another uh, creepy, scary procession where... Uh, the Dolorous Duenna, led by Trafaldin, uh, comes in with the bearded ladies. Yeah. Uh, basically, this is a story within the story or a mask within the story where um, this uh, Duenna, it's the butler in disguise with his beard showing, uh, basically saying that um, – he was the go-between between this virtuous woman and this other character who then became an evil giant. It's it's a parallel to the Miko Mikana section mm -hmm. in the first book of Don Quixote. So in order to defeat the giant who's holding the whole lands hostage, Don Quixote must ride this uh, magical wooden horse. He must ride it and fly through the sky and face down the giant, and Sancho must ride on the back. And so basically what it is is a giant exploding pinata. Yeah. Um, they hoist it up in the air, and they do all these special effects to make them think they're flying, and then at the end they blow it up. Right. So it's, just, it's just like a pack full of firecrackers, and they just, they just light that candle. Yeah. Yeah. So that's when Sancho has this vision of being high up in the air and looking down at the ground and seeing the stars and all this other stuff. And there's this really interesting moment where, where Don Quixote uh, comes up to him after he, he says all this and everybody knows he's faking it because they saw him on the horse, uh, the sort of wooden horse. And Don Quixote says, hey, listen, um, if you say Montesinos was real, I say 
everything you experienced was real. And what that signals is this growing awareness in Don Quixote that, yeah, I know I'm faking it. I, I, I know this isn't for real. I, I, I know this is just me horsing around. But this is way better than reality. Um, so it's just this weird aside, but it, it plays in thematically with the rest of the book. Yeah. Okay. So um, Sancho is going to go to this supposed island. It's just this town that I, I suppose is under the Duke's governance. And the butler's going to take him there, and they're going to set him up with um, this governorship. The night before he leaves, Don Quixote uh, gives him basically two chapters of political wisdom, which is actually sage political wisdom. <laughs> All right. So uh, in the meantime, Don Quixote, uh, they, they have this weird split where it's like a chapter of Sancho, a chapter of Don Quixote. They're sort of on their own for this bit. Yeah. Uh, bit. <clears throat> Don Quixote uh, is fending off the affection of Altisidora, this girl who has quote unquote fallen in love with him. Yeah. Uh, she's singing him all these, uh, you know, heartbreaking songs in the middle of the night. And he doesn't know what to do with this because his chivalric code says he must reject all of this. Okay. So Sancho gets to the Island and starts judging, uh, a whole bunch of court cases essentially. And they're court cases that are taken from kind of folk legend and, mm -hmm. and all kinds of other, you know, previously written narrative tales, but they basically prove that Sancho's not an idiot. He's actually doing very well. And everyone is surprised at how smart he is because he <laughs> right. really is pretty smart. Yeah. Uh, okay. So Don Quixote stays up all night waiting for Altisidora to show up in the, the courtyard and he sings this song about the the virtues of not giving in to lust and, and being a decent person. And that's when um, <clears throat> Altisidora, uh, her, her, I guess, partners in crime, which I, I suppose include the Duke and Duchess to a degree, yeah. throw a bunch of uh, – basically throw a sack of cats on Don Quixote and he gets all scratched up and messed up. <laughs> I say yeah. this is my own cat is trying to scratch something. Okay. So anyway. <laughs> it's, uh, hey, man, it's cats. That's what they're going to do. God, yeah. God, so, God bless them, every one of them. <laughs> so anyway, um, so Don Quixote gets all scratched up and sent to bed. So Sancho uh, the next day is not allowed to eat. Uh, this is another one of the so-called pranks. And um, – the 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 Duke and Duchess uh, basically have this doctor who they said you know offer him all the tantalizing food in the world and then don't let him eat any of it, and so Sancho is being starved. Yeah. Ha ha. Uh, all right. So then uh, Don Quixote has this late night talk with the one of the duennas in the uh, the Duchess's household. A duenna was sort of like an old widowed lady who uh, served sort of, I guess courtly functions around the house yeah and she tells this story essentially uh her daughter had basically been loved and left by this um rich man's son the rich man is the farmer who's loaning all the money to the duke and duchess yeah. and the son basically did the same thing that uh don fernando did to dorotea back in book one um, we're married in the eyes of God. Let's go ahead and have sex. Uh, she said, sure, that's right up my alley. 
uh, she believed him and he basically left her pregnant and split. Uh, because the farmer uh, is loaning all this money to the Duke and Duchess and doesn't think it's a good match, yeah. uh, the Duke and Duchess aren't interested in doing anything about it. Then Altisidora and all her friends uh, get mad at this, blow out the candle that the duenna is holding, and then beat up Don Quixote and the duenna. <laughs> right. So, in, in the night. Uh, Don Quixote just believes it's a bunch of demons. So, enchanters will do what they do. All right. So, back to Sancho. Sancho goes on patrol around the island and again, he keeps meeting people in the dark, and he's put into this position of trying to judge whether or not they're a threat, and he judges very wisely. Everyone's amazed. Okay, we go back to Don Quixote, and in the middle of the day, the duenna brings her daughter and says, basically, will you please help us? You're the writer of wrongs. And Don Quixote says, yes, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> I will find this guy who left you. And the Dugan Duchess are not very pleased by this, uh, if you read between the lines, but figure out a way to turn it to one more prank. Uh, basically, they're going to have one of their lackeys dress up as a knight and joust with Don Quixote and just knock him off his horse and knock him around a little bit and get out of this whole thing. Okay, so in the meantime... Uh, everybody realizes that Sancho is actually a pretty good governor, but they're like, well, we can't have this peasant, uh, you know, being our governor, so we got to get rid of him. So they pretend that uh, the butler and his cronies pretend that the island is under attack and dress Sancho up in this armor that's so heavy he just falls down. So they run over him and jump on top of him and stomp him for a while until they uh, open him up and tell him, okay, we won, we won the day, everything's all clear. Sancho takes off the armor, goes to uh, the hostelry, gets his donkey, and rides the hell off. <laughs> He's <laughs> had enough. <laughs> so they got rid of the best governor they ever had or could have, and uh, that's the end. All right. So Sancho um, is is on his way back, and he runs into this guy, Ricote, who's a Morisco from La Mancha that Sancho knew. They're friends. But because of the expulsion of the Moriscos, yeah. uh, Ricote had to split. His daughter, who you know was full-on Christian, became a Catholic, uh, was forced to flee to Morocco with his wife. They were the, the really strong Catholics. Ricote is kind of on the fence about the whole thing. But he went to Germany to try to see if that would be a safe haven. And now he's coming back to uh, get some of the gold that he buried in Spain, go to Morocco, get his daughter and mother, daughter and wife, and take them to safe haven in Germany. Yeah, Sancho won't turn him in, and he's not going to help him, but he's sort of like, you know, I hope everything turns out for the best. It's this really ambivalent moment, because Cervantes doesn't want to come right out and say, hey man, this is messed up. Right, right. But it, it does signal this kind of empathy towards people who have been branded enemy of the state yeah. and are being kicked out pretty unrighteously. And this would have um, I think it's, it's interesting to note that the this uh, aggressive expulsion took place th this was taking place actually sort of between it, it really picked up after the publication of book one 
Um, yeah. So this is kind of this was something that was going on as Cervantes was writing this the second part like this this was this was happening there were whole you know whole towns being depopulated i mean you're talking about like this was literally ethnically cleansing between five to ten percent of the population of some areas i mean and and, and, and well of the of iberian peninsula in total and closer to like 40 to 50 percent in some parts of it i mean it's just an enormous undertaking of of dispossession yeah and it ruined the economy yeah, it destroyed the economy, especially in the um, in kind of the eastern part of uh, sort of more the Mediterranean coast, which was also kind of the last holdouts in Granada and uh, in Valencia. Those kind of the last holdouts of the you know Iberian uh, Moorish states over there. Yeah, it yeah. just it just wrecked them because because you, you know you had like these were the people who actually worked the land. These were the people who were actually doing productive work. These were the workers who made all the stuff that all the lords would then take. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, so it's it's sort of like the the coming food crisis in America because of the neo Nazis, Nazis, white supremacists, whatever polite term you want to have. I, I have no polite terms. Who currently occupy the Department of Homeland Security? Yeah, exactly, so, exactly. Yeah, ex- expelling these people who and in, in spend their lives laboring to feed us. Yeah, that's a really good plan. Anyway, okay, yeah. We're, we're getting upset, everybody. <laughs> yeah. I'm not getting there. I'm already there. Yeah. Anyway, no. so <laughs> Sancho um, leaves Ricote and then falls in a hole. Okay, so... <laughs> He, he falls into a pit yeah. and he doesn't know what he's doing. And so he's in this cave and he and his donkey are trying to find the way out. Don Quixote, meanwhile, is about to joust with the lackey describe, uh, disguised as the farmer's son. Um, he's getting all pumped up for that. And that's when he hears Sancho. And the cave comes out the other end of where the Duke and Duchesses were. So he he falls into this hole near the side of the road, uh, walks it all night, and ends up back at the Duke and Duchesses. So it's – I'm going to talk about this in a little bit, but there are all these um, parallels to the underworld. Mm Uh, the, the, the whole novel in many ways is very concerned with the descent to the underworld. Don Quixote's uh, Cave of Montesinos is – you know, really modeled on Homer, Virgil, and Dante. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, well, Sancho's falling into a hole is kind of like a parodic version of it. So anyway, um, Don Quixote finds him, and he goes to joust this lackey, and then the lackey falls in love with the girl, because he's like, oh, man, she's beautiful. So he takes off his helmet and basically proposes, says, hey, man, can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. Yeah. She says, okay, that's that's good enough for me. And the Duke and Duchess are are really mad, because he ruined the fun. They don't get to watch Don Quixote joust, and they really don't care about this girl. And so they're like, yeah, 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 we'll consider the marriage. Let's um, let's confine the lackey for a few days to see if he really wants it. So they basically lock him up in jail. Uh, it, it's, it's not treated in the text as if it's a horrible thing. You have to look at the actual event because the tone of the reporting is no different than the tone of the rest of the reporting, mm-hmm. like the narration. But this is clearly the, – these guys basically thwarted the love plot of book one. Yeah. I mean that's that's what the Duke and Duchess do and they just don't care. Yeah. All right. So Don Quixote figures, well, I served my role 
and I'm doing good. So I'm going to go get back on the road and head out to Saragossa. They meet a couple of, um, I guess, uh, artisans who are carrying these icons and relics. And they're, they're relics depicting chivalric and saintly stories. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly to Sancho, Don Quixote does not think that they're real. He, he knows what they are. Um, again, this is Don Quixote sort of becoming unillusioned. Right, right. right. Disillusioned. Okay, so uh, sorry, my cat is doing something. <laughs> so anyway, um, they go to an inn, and Don Quixote does not mistake it for a castle. Yeah, and they overhear someone talking about the second book of Don Quixote. Now they know about the first book of Don Quixote, but they're like, "How can there be a second book of Don Quixote? We haven't done anything yet." Yeah. And uh, he talks to this guy who says, "Yeah, yeah." In the second book of Don Quixote, uh, Don Quixote goes to Saragossa, and um, he he has all these stupid adventures, and eventually he uh, he's locked up and all this other stuff. And Don Quixote says, "But I am Don Quixote." Well, <laughs> if that guy goes to Saragossa to to participate in the jousts, screw that. I'm going to Barcelona. <laughs> That's where he's kidnapped by bandits. Um, he meets. Uh, he, he's taken prisoner by by bandits on the road, and that's when he meets uh, Roque Guinart, who is a Catalan bandit, uh, and he was a real guy. Uh, he's this weird parallel. I'll talk about the parallels in a minute. In this book, or in the second book. Everyone is a mirror image in some way of Don Quixote, mm-hmm. but Don Quixote is also a mirror image of everyone else. So it's like mirrors within mirrors. Yeah. But he kind of gets along with uh, Roque Gennart because Gennart, even though he's a bandit, he's a robber, he has this kind of code of honor which skews towards the chivalric code. So they kind of meet each other as equals in this, this interesting way. Um, in the middle of this, you have the story of Claudia Geronimo, who's another bandit's daughter who fell in love with this other man, uh, who fell in love with this man, who she heard was cheating on her, so she went and shot him. And they go to see what's going on, like, what happened, uh, how is this guy going to die? And he dies. Yeah. Now, this is a parallel to Basilio and Quiteria, where you had what looked like death coming back to life, but in this case, the death is final. It's for real. So it's this weird side story embedded in the Roque Art uh, passage. All right. So they... Don Quixote is given safe passage, basically, to Barcelona. And when he gets there, uh, they're having a party. <laughs> It's St. George's uh, Feast, and it's basically the whole town is a carnival. Yeah. And we get yet another mask. <laughs> so, right. it's, so it's like the, the the whole point is that the whole second book is very theatrical. It keeps advertising its theatricality. Right. So it's sort of like this uh, theater and this theater and this theater and this theater. So it's this kind of large-scale carnival celebration. Everyone is already in disguise. 
So when Don Quixote, the famous character from this book, shows up for real, well, it's just one more disguise. It's right. sort of like <laughs> his disguise is his reality, you know? So um, he's taken in by uh, a couple of the, essentially what are the nouveau riche, and they have a, a little bit of fun with them, and that's where you get the, the episode of The Head. Um, this guy claims to have a head that can tell you anything you want to know. It's this, I, I guess, metal head sitting in a room. And what it is is a head hooked up to uh, a tube that goes down to the basement where someone down in the basement can hear it and speak back, yeah. can hear whatever's spoken in the room and can speak back. And so he's got his nephew, who's uh, a witty student, basically down there giving answers to anything and everything. And so they charm Don Quixote. He dances until he gets sick. And then they go to a bookshop, and Don Quixote actually reads the fake second book of Don Quixote and says, this is garbage. Um, they go out to see the boats. Uh, they they basically get to the ocean, and, and it's it's interesting that the second book of Don Quixote is kind of Echeverria makes this point. I'm going to keep saying it. It's about the journey to the sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, they hit the very ends of Spain in a way. Well, that's what I was. That's kind of what struck me is that the you know he's he's Don Quixote is, is from Estremadura, and the whole first book basically takes place around his neighborhood. You know, yeah. he's, he's there in Estremadura, he's there, which is kind of, that's kind of like, uh, what's the part of Spain that's like borders on Portugal. So it's kind of in the middle of the country, over more toward the Atlantic side than the Mediterranean side. But this, he's, he's actually going on a quest. He's actually going somewhere. And he's, yeah. and he's going up into, the, into what was then the kingdom of Aragon. Uh, so, you know, it's uh, Zaragoza and, and Barcelona and all those places. Like, so it would have been, you know, he was actually going outside of, the people would have been speaking differently. You know, by this yeah. point, this would have been, you know, he's actually going somewhere, which is, you know, which yeah. is itself a big change of pace. The, the the first book he never left Manhattan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> second exactly. Book. Second book he makes it to what Arkansas. Anyway, yeah. Um, but he he goes to the sea, and and Echeverria reads this as an encounter with death. Um, it's the the sea, it, it, and it's not just him. Symbolically, I mean, this is a running theme in a lot of. Uh, of, of literature is kind of like this trope. You can't master the sea. The sea is the end. It's you can't control it. You can't put force over on it. You can read it in Whitman. You can read it in Wallace Stevens, the comedian as the love as the letter C, which is uh, about this failed poet's attempt to try to compress the ocean into a knowable frame. Mm-hmm. It's oblivion in a way. It's it's the vastness that's beyond the human experience. And so Don Quixote reaches that. Now, when he reaches it, they go on a boat to tour it. And then the boat is attacked by Moorish invaders. So uh, a, a small Turkish ship goes in, they exchange gunfire, and they capture the Turkish ship. And lo and behold, the captain is a woman in disguise. She is Anna Felix, Rakote's daughter, who had been in Morocco... Uh, her boyfriend, who's a rich Catholic, followed her, and they had to disguise him as a woman so he would be less appealing to the Turkish court, which is kind of a, a, a jab at um, Turkish uh, sexual mores. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, – or perceived Turkish sexual mores. So um, she was in league with a secret Catholic 
among the raiders, and their plan was to ditch the boat, get to shore, turn everybody in, and then raise money to go back and get her boyfriend out. Lo and behold, uh, again, Ricote is in Barcelona. Yeah. And he sees her and meets her. And they meet up with a viceroy who's like, oh, my God, this is such a heartbreaking story. Tell you what, um, I'll get together uh, an envoy. We'll go and get this guy out of Morocco. You seem like good people. And once we've gotten him out of Morocco, I'm going to go to the court and petition on your behalf so that you can stay here. Now, there's no ending to the story. Yeah. And, you know, part of what he's doing, as you pointed out, this was contemporary events. Mm-hmm. The The ending hasn't been written. Um, it seems hopeful, but we just don't know how it's going to play out. Yeah. And I, I, think don't, I, I think Cervantes is pointing us in a hopeful direction, but that's not how it went. Yeah. That, that's really not how it went. In fact, the guy that they're going to go petition was one of the worst, most xenophobic, uh, ethnophobic, whatever, bastards that you could you yeah. could do. And so, yeah, it probably didn't work, but it's left open-ended. Okay. By the sea, uh, Don Quixote is challenged by the Knight of the White Moon. Um... He's white on white. This is a point that Echeverria makes. He's white on white. He's blankness. He is oblivion. He is death. Uh, in, in the in the challenge with the knight of the the knight of the mirrors, Don Quixote is sort of facing himself, and he's also facing his own lunacy. Uh, in the the knight of the white moon, he's basically facing death, and he loses. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Now, who is the Knight of the White Moon who shows up and challenges him to combat? It's Sanson Carrasco. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> try, time to try this plan again. Yeah. Yeah, but this time he doesn't stall and he just charges right at Don Quixote, knocks him off the horse, and tells him, you have to go back to La Mancha and not engage in acts of chivalry for one year. Yeah. So Don Quixote says, okay, I'll do it. Um, he and Sancho start heading back. They have to return to, um, to La Mancha and they have all these adventures on the way back. Uh, they, they meet Tassilius, who is the lackey of the Duke and Duchess, who basically tells them he wasn't allowed to marry the girl and she's, um, sort of still pregnant back in 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 their castle uh they decide to adopt a pastoral life for a little while it's like don quixote is trading in his chivalric identity for a pastoral identity so he's trading one genre for another um and that's when they're stomped by stampeding pigs and then kidnapped by the Duke and Duchess's men. Uh, They're dragged back to the Duke and Duchess's castle where there's this giant display where everybody looks dead and then yet another mask with Altisidora as Dido on a pyre and um, all of these sort of demonic characters tell uh, everyone that all the duennas in the castle have to slap... uh, 
slap Sancho and poke him in the butt with needles in order to revive her. And they get up to a point when Sancho grabs a torch and starts swinging it at people and says, anybody touches me next, you're going down. (laughs) So it's sort of like he finally fights back. And that's when Altizadora wakes up and um, says, you know, she basically spits out a bunch of curses at Don Quixote, uh, you horrible, awful, chivalric fool. Um, later on that night, she comes to his room and she's basically having this confrontation with him and they start picking her brain and they're like, well, did you go to hell when you were dead on the pyre? Did you go to hell? And she says, well, maybe it wasn't hell, but you know, I did see a bunch of devils playing tennis with the heads of souls and then they (laughs) ran out of heads and they started playing tennis with books and there were flaming books on fire. And the one that she noticed was the fake Book two of Don Quixote. <laughs> Obviously, if any book was going to be condemned to hell, it would be that. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so they go to an inn that Don Quixote again doesn't mistake as a castle. And they meet an actual character from the fake book. The fake second book <laughs> of Don Quixote. So it's this character who um, is kind of one of the main characters of the, the fake second book. And he uh, he says, well, wait a minute, you're not Don Quixote. I was just hanging with Don Quixote. And Don Quixote says, no, I'm the real Don Quixote. And he talks to Sancho and they have this whole thing where eventually they convince the guy and they get him to swear an affidavit and get it signed by a notary that the, the fake Don Quixote that appears in the second book of Don Quixote is not the real Don Quixote. This is the real Don Quixote. So you have a fake character meeting a second fake character swearing on their reality. (laughs) So they they eventually get back to La Mancha and Don Quixote sees a whole bunch of omens uh, sort of that he thinks signifying that Dulcinea will never be disenchanted and he'll never see her for real. And when they get back home, Don Quixote falls ill. He's out of it for a couple of days. He comes to, he renounces chivalry, he makes a will, and he embraces his identity as Alonso Quijana, this old, old, you know, would-be gentleman. Um, He does right by everybody. He, He even gives Sancho his share. Yeah. And then he dies. Cid Hamete hangs up his pen the end yeah all right so <laughs> that took up an hour <laughs> <laughs> it did but but and i would and i would say ably done uh claude all right i think that was, that so was a very I, that was a very able uh synopsis i i had 30 minutes to make my notes today while my son was uh <laughs> sleeping so i you know but anyway uh so the 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 theoretical or thematic stuff that that I think is really important is is to think about this uh first as the baroque book of disillusionment and disenchantment mm-hmm. uh the, again i'm going i'm I'm leaning on Echeverria, but i I want to elaborate on this and sort of draw from it uh on my own a little bit um theatricality is all over the place in book two of Don Quixote, but so is this idea that the quest is for disenchantment mm-hmm. the whole quest this time around is to disenchant Dulcidea. But how do you disenchant a figment of your imagination? You get rid of it. Yeah. So part of this is Don Quixote sort of waking up to the reality of, of his own life. But, and, and this is a Baroque thing, 
if you think about this in Baroque Catholic terms, the reality of your life is really just another dream. The real life takes place after you're dead. Right. So that's part of this this whole play with illusions all in Don Quixote. On the one hand, it's all about disillusionment, but it's also disillusionment within certain parameters that knows the final disillusionment will be death. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I guess that, that really ties in with that uh, what you were saying about the journey to the sea, this journey to oblivion, you know, inaccessible yeah. oblivion. Yeah. That's, wow, yeah. So uh, the the real life begins after you're dead. And, and this is something that, you know, really, really struck me. Um, I, I do think that Cervantes is sort of leaning on that a little bit. And, and this is what made me think, I keep thinking back to, to Montaigne. Um, when you meditate on life and when you do all this thinking and, and revising and, and rethinking and, and working through all of it, it, it helps you to understand the illusions and it helps you to die. Mm-hmm. There, there's a kind of stoicism you know that I think we talked about in Montaigne. And I think that there's a similar stoicism in Cervantes. Having said that, you know, I, it does seem to me thematically that he is working towards this idea that the the real disenchantment to be unenchanted is to die yeah and there's something about cervantes that wants to adopt a kind of philosophical or stoic stance towards that i don't find this to be christian at all Hmm. um i don't know what it is but there it, it doesn't strike me that this is really that catholic a work this seems something else yeah i think you're really i think you're really onto something and this this ties in a little bit to some thoughts i had while i was reading the second book and this is this is going to be a bit pat it's going to be a bit <laughs> glib because i'm a pat and glib man um everyone who's listened to the show knows this about me so this is not a surprise <laughs> to anybody um but here's kind of uh here's something that's been rolling around in my brain i'm going to discover it as i talk about it right um, but sort of, it's just sort of, it's tying into that. It's, it's not Catholic. Like it's, you know, and I think you're right. Like, I think it's, it's book two, having read book two, I began to sort of interpret book one as a loving parody of Castile itself. Castile mm-hmm. as a state project, Castile as a society, because I, I sort of started seeing it as like, well, you know, Don Quixote is a he you know he 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 is of the kind of privileged class and yet not really all that privileged which makes him kind of a kind of stand in for either end of the societal scale he's an everyman in that sense um and and what is he doing he is he is he is haunted by visions of glory he is haunted by these this compulsion to holy endeavor and he attempts, he rides out and attempts to find monsters to slay wherever he might. But instead, all he finds is normal people going about their lives and he makes a mess of everything while trying to embody this grand destiny. What, well, what was Spain doing? You know, you had, you had, Spain was going around the world, you know, looking for crusades to fight and, you know, and they'd be justified for all the, 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 you know, 
violence they inflicted on these people all around the world who weren't monsters, who weren't who weren't dragons. There's people living their lives and the Spaniards show up and you destroy everything and take all their stuff and enslave them. Um, and, and for what? And even that is futile because all this like you read about like the Spanish Empire, the amount of sheer human life that was spent dragging precious metal out of the ground halfway across the world to send it back over to Europe to pay people to go kill other people in the Habsburg holdings on the rest of the European continent for nothing, for nothing, because they would just destroy, just d- utterly lay waste. To, I'm speaking, thinking specifically of what's called the 80 years war. Let that rattle around in your brain for a minute. <laughs> the 80 years war, which was basically the struggle for independence in the, uh, the Dutch speaking um, portions of the Habsburg holdings in what is today Belgium and the Netherlands. And that's what all this, that's so even though you had this world spanning empire, this kind of uh, this kind of imperial endeavor that had never been seen before, Spain itself still remained in many ways this backward place, this this impoverished place, this continually impoverishing place, as it expelled productive people out of it, all in the pursuit of this. I'm going to use the word quixotic goal of yeah. of this kind of uh, this idea of dominion, and as I read book two. As, yeah. I, as I read book two, I, I in, in this sort of the schema that I built for myself, where Don Quixote represents, you know, the Castilian political project in the first one, book two, it's it's almost Cervantes apologizing to Don Quixote for that. Yeah, it's him. You know, Don Quixote goes out and he sees what is the real face of this monster. What is the real face of this monster? It's the aristocracy. What is the mm-hmm. real face of this monster? It's ethnic cleansing. What is the real yeah. face of all of this? It's the it's the just bland cruelty inflicted by the powerful against the less powerful. And who has wisdom in book two? Sancho Panza. Who can actually yeah. Yeah. who who has enough experience with the way things actually work in the concrete world where people work together to get things done to actually make just judgments? It's not someone who spent their lives in an ivory tower. It's not someone who spent their lives being being taught. You know, uh, go, going through you know arguments about how many angels dance on the head of a pin, and then they're handed the reins to like you know these huge mannered estates or whatever. It's Sancho Panza, and well, then, yeah. So that's that that's gets, kind of that's my own very probably very dumb interpretation. No, no, no. no. You're absolutely stuff. right because that's you're absolutely right because that's that's one of the the things that keeps coming up are, are questions of authors and authority. Yeah. Um, with okay. There, there's a lot of anti-clerical stuff mm-hmm. in book two, and there's also a lot of weird anti-book stuff. Now, it's mostly directed at the fake second book of Don Quixote, but there's also this this weird thing about how books are great and all, but really uh, the best authority is experience. Yeah. And, and that's Sancho. Yeah. That's Sancho. Yeah. And again, that, that seems to be the through line if we go – okay, let's ignore Dante for a little bit. But if we go back to Canterbury Tales, if we go to um, Montaigne, if we go right into Don Quixote, and even into Moliere to a degree, the, the through line is books are great. Trust experience. Trust your gut. Yeah. You know, so it, it's just. Y- y- I think you're absolutely right that that Sancho is the one who's the only. He seems to be the only capable one at, uh, of doing anything, and he is capable because he's not. 
diluted by the um i guess the courtly education or or by aristocratic ex- well all right <laughs> I, i'm trying to think about this he wants it he would love to be an aristocrat he would love right. to be a governor he right would right love right to rise he, above his station but yeah. he's also like there's no possible way he's going to do it, but when given the chance, he does it. Right. Um, if if uh, I'm going to go way out on a limb here, and uh, I will say Sancho Panza is the official literary embodiment of the noble experiment in worker self-management that was the Catalonian uh, anarchist commune during the Spanish Civil War. I have probably offended politically and historically a lot of people by saying this, um, but uh, uh, long live Catalonia, uh, Sancho Panza. You know, you're you're doing great, sweetie. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I I think you're right about that. And and the the position of Spain, the the basically collapse of the empire, not even collapse. It, it held itself up as being still very much alive, but everybody could see through it. And there there had been you know. A generation or so of extraordinarily bad aristocratic management mm-hmm. that uh, the Baroque is often commenting upon. Mm-hmm. All right, so you have disillusionment and disenchantment. Um, you have mirrors. Okay, I, I said this before. Everything is a reflection of Don Quixote. So uh, the the gentleman in green is Alonso Quijano. Like what he could have been, Mm -hmm. i.e. just a decent country gentleman who ran everything adequately, who was appropriate, who married, settled down, uh, kept within his bounds, and just kept order in the lands that he had inherited. You know? Um, Sanson Carrasco is another version of Don Quixote. (laughs) <laughs> is is yeah, he not yeah. just as crazy? Like yeah. your plan to return this guy to sanity is to inspire him to be insane, so that you can beat him up to return. <laughs> well, it's, to it's, it's like you know the only way to defeat the insanity is to defeat the insanity in its own game. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it, yeah, you're right. Well, like it's, <laughs> the, the plan is that he'll go and like he'll defeat him as a knight, and that means that you know Don Quixote has been bested, so he has to do what he yeah. says. You know. Um, and you know, so in and even other characters, you know, the Duke and Duchess are are crazier than Don Quixote is. I mean, there if Don Quixote is a nobleman who's basically wasting his life and what resources he has on this stupid quest, they're going even further, <laughs> wasting all of their time and resources just to entertain themselves with this guy who they're misreading um so on and so forth everyone is a kind of parallel to don quixote Mm -hmm. but don quixote also reveals them through his conversation with them yeah so it's it's mirrors within mirrors in this this strange way now another thing that happens is Okay, Echeverria points this out. God, I'm tired of saying that. But <laughs> book two mirrors sections of book one, but then book two begins to mirror itself, right? Yeah. So you've got, I mean, the 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 woman who kills her lover is a parallel or a mirror image of the the Basilio pretending to kill himself. Um, what? 
what that that begins to be is the situation where events are sequential and not necessarily heavily plotted. Mm-hmm. Um, a plot is a causal connection between the events. And a sequential plot is going to be one where it just goes from event to event to event to event to event. Like there are events in a sequence, not necessarily in some kind of direct causal connection. So like if you look back at book one, the framework uh, of the whole is, is sort of Don Quixote and Sancho going out there. But then they get drawn into this love plot. And the love plot, the tales begin to sort of dictate the movement of the the story so that eventually the, they coincide and all become one. So it becomes this sort of narrative drive. There's less narrative drive and more of sort of sequential event in, in book two because everything is a mirror of everything else. That, that signals that it's it sort of variations and permutations on a theme and okay on the one hand that's that's picked up in the 20th century and becomes uh, a sort of aspect of postmodern writing because it sort of liberates everything from the direct causal connection of plot right yeah but it also signals this weird way in which you could really consider Don Quixote as a Baroque work. And I'm thinking Baroque, like in terms of, of uh, a Bach fugue, like the art of the fugue is nothing but v- sequential variation and permutation of counterpoint. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the only thing that stopped Bach from continuing the art of the fugue was, <laughs> well, he died. Right. I mean, he, yeah. he could have just kept going. Um, I mean, it's a great work. It's a phenomenally bizarre work. But um, yeah, that that's sort of how Don Quixote book two plays out is everything is just a variation and permutation of everything else. So even though they're moving somewhere geographically, thematically, they're just spinning in circles. It's like a giant fugue. Mm-hmm. It, it ends when Don Quixote dies. So that that weird sequencing is something that I find really fascinating. So then after that, you have this issue of authors and authority. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, everybody keeps trying to author everybody else. And and we saw this a little bit in book one where characters seemed to be self-authoring. Right. Like they would, you know, Don Quixote famously read books of chivalry and rewrote himself as a knight. Uh, the 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 rich girl rewrote herself as a, a shepherdess because she wanted to live out in the woods. Mm-hmm. The guy who was way into her rewrote himself through his funeral orations in, in a particular <laughs> right. light. So everybody's sort of revising themselves we, and, and, and remaking themselves. We, we talked about that. Uh, in book two, other characters are trying to author Don Quixote. Yeah. So Sanson Carrasco thinks he can write the story to contain Don Quixote and he can't. <laughs> he yeah, loses yeah. <laughs> because Don Quixote knocks him off the horse. Yeah. Um, the butler is trying to write the, the, the story for the governorship of Sancho's Island, but Sancho keeps getting away from him because Sancho is too smart. Yeah. I mean, he never sees through it, 
but his governorship is actually very good. So there's this issue of authors and authority. Um, who is really in charge? And ultimately, as we were just sort of talking about, experience is the best, the best choice, right? Yeah. Um, everything keeps getting thrown off. And, and I think the, that leads to the running joke of, you know, someone else tried to author Don Quixote and Cervantes took that, <laughs> that apocryphal book and just throttled it within an inch of its life. Yeah. Um, so he kind of outdid it. So then you have the classical allusions. Uh, one of the things that that's going on in the first book is that, you know, clearly Cervantes is drawing from, the the chivalric tales and that's sort of like the primary source but he he steps up the game in the second book by turning everything to virgil homer and dante and you can see this most clearly in all of the underworld stuff uh, the whole book in a lot of ways is about going into the dark mm-hmm. the the descent into the dark it starts in the very beginning when they get to Toboso they arrive there in the dark it's a kind of city of the dead and they butt right up against the church and presumably they're in the graveyard yeah um the the whole thing is a descent and characters keep descending to the underworld now what he does with that is allows the imagination to run rampant and what you get when Don Quixote descends into the cave of Montesinos is basically Don Quixote's inner life. Um, Echeverria reads this as outfroiding Freud because there's <laughs> yeah. so much of the uncanny that Freud sort of had to catch up with. And, and Freud was a reader of Don Quixote for, uh, sort of famously. Um, but the cave of Montesinos is, is Don Quixote revealing his unconscious the, the depth of who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, Echeverria reads that as his growing awareness that what he's doing is a form of madness. And his he sees that as the point at which he begins to regain his sanity because uh, he begins to see that this is all an illusion, an enchantment. And it doesn't make any sense, but I, I, I'm not quite sure if I agree with him on that. Mm-hmm. Um, Echeverria reads the whole book as, or, or all the book too, as Don Quixote's quest essentially to overthrow himself so that he can regain his sanity. I think that's a little too pat. I think that's going a little too far, but mm-hmm. it is something that, that I can see lurking back there. I, I, I think, it's too much to say that it gives it the structure of the whole, but it is another thematic thing that's lurking back there. But anyway, you have yeah. Sancho falling in the pit. You have Altisidora's dream. These are all descents into the underworld and the the unconscious or the subconscious of of all of these these characters. So in, anyway, um, that's what I came up with. Yeah, I, I, no, but I mean that's that's marvelous. I mean you're you're absolutely right. It's man as. I mean, just just as with the with the first book, like I I I come away from reading Don Quixote just just incredibly impressed with. I don't know if I'm going to express this correctly. How much how much that Cervantes had to hold inside his head while he wrote, 
Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like to to make this to make it all work, and even then, like it's a little you know it's a little ramshackle, but it points it out. You know, it's like oh yeah, you know, uh, sure, Sancho Panza's wife has several different names. Uh, yeah, let's make a joke <laughs> about that. But at the same time, like the, there's there's so many moving parts. There's so many yeah. moving parts to it, and and I think it's part of what is what is fascinating about great writing um, is that it's it's necessarily. Well, it's necessarily a kind of sequential process as you yeah. literally write the language out because that's how we have constructed our written word. That's how we have constructed our languages themselves, and you know, because you can only speak one phoneme at a time, can you? Um, right. I guess this, if you, unless you're doing uh, like two and throat singing, and you can do two tones at the same time, which is again another marvelous uh, uh, human achievement. But so necessarily, if you are going to be, you know, writing is necessarily a linear act, but the the whole work can have these structures, these themes, this all this which is included in it, which the author must necessarily kind of you know hold in mind as they write. I mean, I'm sure you know using notes and all that stuff, but you know what I mean. Like, there's got to be a there's there's the um, I don't know. I'm just I'm just I find myself being very impressed with how much Cervantes, the conception that he had, and how it was expressed so elegantly and hilariously on the page. Just considering um, how it, how it was transmitted from whatever conception he had onto the page in the form of this language. Um, well, I, you know, I, the the way we're talking about it, I, we're making this sound okay. We're making this sound like a very very heady, intense, you know. Yeah, like it's some sort of like work that like that's, dense that's, and 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 whatever. But it's it's a but it's a breeze to read. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's that's the thing that 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 I find really amazing about this work yeah. is that okay. One of the points that Echeverria makes, and, and I wanted to get back to this, is I wanted to that say that everyone, phrase again. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> everybody is misreading the first book of Don Quixote. Hmm. Like the they're they're basically reading it like I thought I was supposed to read it back when I was seventeen, reading this on my parents' couch, you know, uh, because I had a book report to do on it. Yeah, it's not the story of some stupid idiot that we're supposed to make fun of. Yeah. It, it was never that in the first place. There's, there's more to it than that. And everybody who has read the first book keeps thinking, well, here's the dumb madman or, or here's the, the, the lunatic who's going to do something stupid and his fat gluttonous idiot sidekick. Right. And, um, the, the Duke and Duchess definitely read it that way. And that's not who they are. Yeah. Uh, the other characters keep anticipating that they will be that, uh, since when Carrasco keeps anticipating that they will be that and they're not, uh, they get the better of him. Um, the, the author of the fake second book of Don Quixote misread it. Yeah. And and I think that was like a real gall to Cervantes because apparently in the fake book, um, Don Quixote is eventually cured by, you know, spending time in a lunatic asylum. He's a figure of much ridicule. People beat him up and everybody laughs at him in that same sort of power way that the canon was laughing at him. Yeah. Uh, that, that we pointed out last time. And uh, Sancho is just a drunk and a glutton. Yeah. And he's he's definitely looking for food, but 
Cervantes keeps making the point he's looking for food because they're out in the road starving. Right. <laughs> You'd be looking for food too, man. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, yeah, that that nobody seems to have read the first book yeah. accurately. And so they're imposing a meaning on it, but Don Quixote keeps slipping away from them. Mm-hmm. Um, he's more than what everyone anticipates he's going to be. And he can always find some way to maneuver out from under it. Uh, the, that's the thing that I think that gives some credence to to Echeverria's claim that this is about him trying to conquer himself in some way, to disenchant himself. There's something to that because um, ultimately he's going to prove saner than everyone else around him. But I still think that's a, a little too pat. But I, I think that's 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 really sort of it, is that this is a heavy work, and it's a heady work, but it's such a funny work, mm-hmm. and it's such a breeze to read. Um, maybe if we're still alive, we'll get to Ulysses one of these days, which, which is also a very funny work and a very heady work. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Ulysses is very, very rich, and I, I really like the book. But it's not an easy read. This is. I mean, it's it's extraordinarily light. It's you can go into it misreading. You can go into it thinking you're going to get one thing, and then suddenly realizing you're reading something else. But you can also go into it for fun. Yeah. I mean, this. <laughs> I I think I talked about this with Ludovici that this is a very fast book. Mm-hmm. You're done with it, like, maybe in a couple of weeks. Yeah. And, and there's something about the speed and, and just the joy of reading it that I think makes you overlook what Cervantes is really getting at here. Yeah. And, and I think this illusory nature of the world is is sort of at the heart of it all. Don Quixote gets the chance to invent and reinvent and then he gets the chance to see through himself. Um, everything else after book one is sort of everyone else's corrupt invention. Mm-hmm. And he gets to hang on to his, I guess, his chivalric ideal by, by renouncing his chivalric ideal and having the heroism to see through that, you know? Yeah. Um, Man, I, I hate the Duke and Duchess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a uh, a, a phenomenally a, a very well painted just the people you love to hate, you know, <laughs> and just uh, and, and and again in a in a fine skewering of the aristocratic class as a whole. I think, and I, I think that was yeah. part of what Cervantes was setting out to do, especially because like they're they're consumed with cruelty, but they can't even do that themselves. They have to get their butler <laughs> to do it. <laughs> Yeah, they need another author. Like, yeah. how many processions can we have in one house? Yeah, yeah. I mean, how much time do you have? But yeah, it's it's a really phenomenal work, and and I, I feel like what did we just spend? You know, nearly two hours talking about this. I feel we've just gotten to the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I mean, that's it's, uh, it's the, absolutely one of those works. And I as I know we say this every time, but I, I heartily recommend to all the listeners out there to please read it for yourself. You, you can well, you can I, you know read these things for yourself and see how dunderheaded uh, you know I or Claude might have been about something, <laughs> and you can write us and tell us about it. Um, yeah, please do. 
I feel like we we've just gotten to the tip of the iceberg that there's so much more here. It's such a rich work and there's so much more to think about in terms of how all of this is reflecting back on itself. Um, it's, it's just as elaborate and I guess constructed in a way to question reality as well, I'll go back to Memento or Inception, mm-hmm. like a, a Nolan film. Yeah, yeah. But it, it it's not – it doesn't have the portentousness at all, the portentousness at all. Yeah. It's, it's just a breeze to sort of move through and what a, what a, a beautiful work. You know, the, the, a similar work uh, that, that – or, or a work in a similar vein would be uh, Calderon's Life is But a Dream – Mm-hmm. About the prince who you know is grow he grows up in a tower because everyone's scared he's going to be a horrible bastard as a king. Um, he's liberated from the tower uh, and told, "Hey, you're actually a king." Um, he wakes up on the throne and then becomes a horrible bastard. So then they're like, "All right, we can't have this," and they knock him out and put him back to sleep and put him back in the tower. And he's like, "Well, what happened to the kingdom?" He said, uh, "That was a dream." Oh. Okay. And then he's liberated again and put on the throne again. And this time he realizes, well, either I'm in the tower or I'm the king right now. And I can't trust either reality. So I might as well be a good guy because who knows what's going to happen next. <laughs> right. um, yeah. There's a similar kind of play with that in this. But like I said, I can't quite put my finger on what exactly Cervantes theology is. I mean, in life, pragmatically, he was a Catholic. He Mm -hmm. took last rites and what have you. But there's something about Don Quixote that in its acceptance of death, uh, it it doesn't seem concerned with the trappings of Catholicism or Christianity. And and this is, I I guess, my last thought about this. Um, You know, Montaigne kept, kept sort of writing that uh, to study philosophy is to study how to die. Yeah. It, it's how not to fear, how not to feel anxiety, how to sort of understand the nature of pain and just accept that you are a terminal being. Um, Don Quixote, I think, in some ways, is similar to that, in that, you know, by the end, it's about Don Quixote coming to terms and accepting who he is, what he is, and a final reality, which is beyond this. But it's also a book about how to live. Mm -hmm. Like, if you don't have your illusions, what do you have? I I wake (laughs) up every morning and I delude myself into believing that this this soul-crushing job that I have is for the good. Mm-hmm. And I make very little money. <laughs> uh, please. Do we have a Patreon? Uh, we, we don't, anyway. but that's why <laughs> we, but, um, we might you know, set one up for, for just these times. Yeah. For, for very little money, uh, I, I put in a lot of effort to teach people to try to write and think. And maybe one person in any given semester takes away one thing from that 
I, I delude myself every time we come on here into believing that we are doing something worth doing, that we are reading this stuff and having this conversation and in some way, shape or form reaching somebody to do something. And yet I know all of this is false in the long scheme of things. Um, what I have done with my life is probably just a horrible wash. I have wasted my time <laughs> reading all of this material, and I can't really account for having spent all that money and time learning to do this because the recompense is only ever going to be internal, if that. And yet, I wake up every morning believing that this is important. Yeah, I, I have to I have to have that illusion in order to live. Right, right. That's um, that's actually uh, it's funny you mentioned that because that's uh, <laughs> maybe this is a window into sort of my upbringing. But that was an element of fatherly advice that my dad told me about one time. <laughs> that like but, but you have to have this baseline assumption that there's going to be a tomorrow and you're going to have to prepare for it. And, you know, you have to keep, you know, you have to assume that it's all going to keep going and that is worth doing. Because, you know, otherwise, without that assumption, you, you don't really have anything else. But I think it's, I think you're right that there's a kind of um, there's 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 disillusionment that can result in inertia. And there yeah. is disillusionment that is liberatory. And, and I think Don Quixote is going for the liberatory. And precisely. Exactly. Like the well, it's the difference between, I think, one of my favorite uh, memes I have ever seen of all time. And I, I apologize for being the kind of guy who describes a meme to you, listeners. <laughs> but there's uh, – it's uh, two panels. And on the left side panel, it's like a, a black and white photo of a, a person sort of, you know, hang, hang dog on, sitting on their bed. And it says, nothing in life matters. And on the on the other panel – uh, it's a, a brightly colored, you know, fun looking dude giving the thumbs up with sunglasses and this loud Hawaiian shirt, you know, like a shark, you know, flying through the background or, you know, dolphins or something. And it says nothing in life matters. And <laughs> and that's the choice, you know, and yeah. I, I think Cervantes, I think you're right that Cervantes was getting toward that that Montanian existentialism, if we want to call it. Um, yeah. Yeah. But th- there's there's also something else going on, though, which which I, I think is the tweak is that, well, if nothing really matters, then why not be the best possible version of yourself according to yeah. how you think the world should be? Exactly. I mean, as, and there, there that's is. foolish. Exactly. And, and, it's, and you know what? It's good to, it, it might be good to be foolish. I mean, heavens. <laughs> why not? That's what I say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I think we've sort of uh, wrapped this up. I, yeah. I, I think that's that's what we can do with Don Quixote on this night. Yeah. Um, I, and uh, are you ready, Daniel? We are about to make a headlong plunge into Milton. Yeah, man. I you know I have fond memories of Milton. Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> cool. I, I enjoyed reading. You know, I read the the Paradise Lost in college for some class or other, uh, and I remember being interested by it. I remember thinking it was yeah. an interesting work. So we'll see if it holds up. I don't know. Maybe I've maybe you know maybe the intervening years have will have given me enough to know that uh, John Milton sucks, or maybe maybe I, I will appreciate him all over again. That's that's the big that's the roll of the dice here on the Cannonball. Well, I'll tell you this. Uh, teach him five years in a row. <laughs> it starts wearing a little thin. Um, yeah, I think I went through the the 
the wormhole on this one. Um, we, you know, I, I'm going to do some writing on the blog uh, about this, but I, I'm not looking forward to it. As soon as we're done with Paradise Lost, I will consider myself a lucky man. All right, man. Well, we'll you know, we won't make a big hash. We, we won't do a, a, a uh, what, a six-month-long symposium like we did with Don No, Quixote. one no, and we're done. We're knocking it one out. And done. Yeah, yeah. All right. One well, well dear right. listeners, you can look forward to that next time. <laughs> yeah, so rate and review on iTunes. Uh, find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter. We're around. And... Uh, <laughs> Read something. I don't care. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Has Don Quixote taught us anything? Read something. I don't care. <laughs> All right. I think that's our last word. <laughs>